this is the observance day, <clears throat> the half moon height. We have this opportunity this afternoon to reflect on Dhamma the way it is. So each one of us, the way it is right now, is, is going to be different, isn't it? Each one has their own mood, memories, thoughts, expectations, or whatever. So when we try to compare one person with another, we get confused because we're all different. On the level of sankharas, of conditioned phenomena, everything is different. Nothing can stabilize into a permanent quality or condition. It's beyond the ability. Sankaras, their very nature is change. So when the Buddha taught Sapay Sankarani Cha, all conditions are impermanent. This is the way it is. Sankaras are like this. They, they can be of any quality, high, low, good or bad, right or wrong, whatever, material or mental, emotional, they change. Their nature is an inicha, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactory, anatta, non-self. So the Buddha laid down this teaching very clearly. It's very simple. But if you reflect on it. It's not like a teaching you grasp. It's not a doctrinal Buddhist doctrine that you must believe in because belief just stops you from reflecting. You just said the Buddha said that, so it's true, rather than taking what the Buddha said and using it, directing in the, looking in the direction that it's pointing. So in this winter's retreat, this is the last month of the retreat. At this point in time, place, it's like this. So this may sound very prosaic and boring, it's like this, but it is using words to, to open up the the mind to the way it is rather than try to determine whether the way it is right now is right or wrong, good or bad, true or false. And what we call meditation is really mindfulness. There are so many meditation techniques and that are available now on the internet and various teachers teach different styles. But the main point, because that's the way teaching is, it depends on words, so no two teachers are going to sound exactly the same. How you hear me, how you receive what I'm saying, is it going to be exactly the same from one person to the other? I doubt it. But the reflection isn't on 
whether what I'm saying is right or wrong. It's not about you trying to believe what I'm saying is right or trying to prove I'm wrong. It's an invitation, encouragement to reflect on the response, the reaction that you're having at this moment is like this. Whatever that reaction, emotional state, mood that arises in the present for the individuals, is if it's all different, all wrong, all right, or what, what mixture is not the issue, it is the way it is. So when I talk about Dhamma, the reality of the way it is, In religion, religion is the kind of outer surface of everything. You know, it's the, the skin of the fruit. It's not the juice, not the pulp, but the external surface. So religions can be different, you know, they can they have different, just like there are many kinds of fruit available. Some prefer one over another, but that doesn't make one better than the other. It's, it's just the way things are. Nobody's going to demand that you, we feel the same and find delicious the, the one fruit that we all agree on. That would be tyranny. That's what tyranny is. You have to believe what I believe, what I say. So many, so much of religious teaching gets uh, blocked off by doctrines, things you have to believe in order to be a functioning member of a particular group. Now belief is grasping concepts that you are attracted to or, or which you are uh, interested in. Or maybe you're not interested in it, but you're told that if you don't believe in this certain way, then you're a sinner, there's something wrong with you, you're an apostate and you have to leave the group. But that's not reflecting on the way it is, that's just a form of tyranny where one person determines what everybody has to believe in, or one group, without question. So that's one reason like Christianity broke up into so many different sects, so many different kinds of Christian groups, because people had different takes on the basic teachings and the history and so forth of, of the Christian religion. Buddhism also can, can be caught in, the, in the, just believing in Tibetan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, Korean Buddhism, Thai Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism. And we can all feel our particular 
form that we've chosen is better than the rest. I reflect on that. This feeling of what I have is better than what you have is a, is a feeling of words that arise and cease. <clears throat> and that's the very nature of all language, all words, no matter how high-minded, how beautiful the word might be, or how mean, low, or nasty it might be. The one thing in common all words have is their sakaras, conditions, their phenomena. And that's why I always encourage you to listen to the words that enter your mind, not, you know, without judging them. Because as you, if you learn to just sit still in a quiet place for a while, then various thoughts, memories, concepts arise and cease. You're not trying to control them, like logically reasoning everything out and whether or judging it as right or wrong or, or true or false, but it's like this. So this is reflecting on the, the nature of words, thoughts, as they arise and cease, rather than trying to figure out what kind of thoughts you should think and what kind of thoughts are wrong and bad you shouldn't, that shouldn't arise. If you have bad thoughts, you easily assume there's some evil source in you or some devil trying to tempt you or that you're a bad person because a good person wouldn't have evil thoughts. So you see, that's conceptual proliferation. That The mind goes round and round about right and wrong, good and bad. And of course, I assume everybody here wants to be good, you know, in the whole monastic form. In all religious forms, the, the ambition to, to be a good person is a common bond we share. But we can't always have good thoughts. Living in a community, you know, that has a structure to it that we all agree to live, to surrender, to live within the structure of the Vinaya, the precepts. That's an agreement to, be, to join the community of monks and nuns. But that's about action and speech. You know, so all the Vinaya precepts are about right action and right speech, not about right thought. Because thought can be wrong, can be bad, can be evil, as well as good and the best, the highest possible thought you can think in any moment. You can't sustain it. Bad thoughts, the same way, you can't sustain them if you, if you observe them, they arise and they cease. When you resist them, when you try to suppress them, 
then you proliferate around them and blame somebody. Blame, either you blame external sources or some kind of evil force in the, in the universe is tempting you is one way of expressing that or thinking that somebody in the Sangha is trying to influence you in a negative way or that you are just a bad person. But whatever take you have in regarding to bad or evil thoughts is still the use of words, proliferating concepts in whatever language you think in or whatever language arises in your consciousness. But when we take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, Buddha, Bhutto, means awakened consciousness. It's not about trying to become a Buddha or act like a Buddha. So it's not a show that we're trying to wear a costume to look like Buddhas, shaving our heads, wearing these colored robes. We're not trying to become Buddhas or act like Buddhas. But it's uh, uh, the external signs, the rhyme, the, the, the surface that we can reflect on. Like it's the, the robe is always one which reminds you you're not a lay person anymore. Because many of our thoughts Many of our emotional reactions, experiences that we have are still coming from the time we were lay people, even from the time we were little children, teenagers, young adults, and, and onward. But what is it, or who is it, that is aware of thoughts as thoughts? Not the critic. <clears throat> The critic is not who you are. You're not a, you're not, your position in life isn't to be stuck in a critical mind that's caught always in this, in seeing everything, what's right or wrong about every condition, every situation. Because all conditions, all sankharas are changing. They can't sustain, you can't sustain sankharas. <clears throat> like many of us have had profound insights in, through various forms of meditation. <clears throat> and then we, <clears throat> then we remember that. Remember yesterday's meditation was really good. So we, just for example, I think yesterday I sat in the temple and I had this most profound insight into Dhamma. What is that? That's a memory, isn't it? That arises in the present moment. That's the way it is. Memories are impermanent. The next day you come back and sit in the same place in the temple, do the same things that you remember doing the previous day when you had this profound insight, and what happens? Your mind goes all restless, negative. You're struggling with it. You want to get up and leave. You've 
feel disappointed. You hope that 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 memory of the previous day, the bliss that you experienced from a previous day, you can sustain into the, the whole of your life forevermore, we hope. We would like that. You know, we'd like to live in a state of what we call bliss forever and ever because we don't like to suffer. But the very nature of sankaras is dukkha or suffering, unsatisfactoriness, because that's the way sankaras are. They're not satisfying. No matter how good or beautiful or right or the best that you can possibly have as a sankara, it's going to change. Because sankaras are impermanent and unsatisfactory. And that's the way it is. Whose fault is that, you think? Is it God's fault? Why didn't God create permanently blissful sankaras for us to, once we have the insight that we stay in that blissful state forever and ever, beyond death? Because we can imagine, you know, bliss is a permanent state, but the imagination that we create about bliss is still, there's still words, it's still concepts that you create in the present moment. So trying to remember previous insights is suffering. When I was a Samanera, that was 55 years ago, before I met Lung Po Cha, I, I spent the first year as a Samanera in a monastery in Nong Kai, which is in Northeast Thailand. It's the uh, place you go to to cross over into Laos to go to Yangtian. I ordained in Wat Sisiket, uh, one of the main temples in the middle of the town, and the head monk sent me off to a meditation monastery outside the town, where I spent a year meditating on uh, try, trying and using methods at first. The methods I couldn't, you know, found blocked my blocked me I couldn't get beyond them I'd feel I'd feel uh, if I wasn't doing this method I wasn't meditating I feel guilty <clears throat> I try to force myself to do this this meditation technique all day and when you're with yourself you know you have no distractions I didn't take any books except one book that I've given many of you called Word of the Buddha. It's the, the basic teachings from the suttas in the Tripitaka. That's the only book I would allow myself to read. So in the first three months, after desperately trying to perform this technique that I was taught in Bangkok before I ordained, and I couldn't do it. I just gave up. 
And then I sat there for about maybe three months in a kuti by myself. And they were very good to me. The, the, the nuns, the, the summoners that would provide me with food every day, uh, had good support from lay community in Nongkai. So nothing to complain about. It wasn't due to anything, you know, untoward that was happening around me in the, in the monastery. But I was 31 or 32 years old at the time, and I'd spent a life of repressing negative states. So my self-image was that I was a good-natured person, basically a very good-natured person, because I knew how to get along in life and be kind of friendly and open and I considered myself a kind of well-adjusted adult male. But then living alone with nothing to, to do for 24-7 except do this technique, I couldn't sustain it. And then I was told, you know, the teacher that taught me this technique said, I have to keep doing this over and over till I get enlightened. Well, it wasn't working. So I just had this intuition, a kind of intuition, there's nothing I can do. So I learned to just sit and watch. And so much anger, resentment, fear started arising in consciousness. I looked at it it's like 32 years of repressed anger, resentment. In anyone's life, isn't there a lot to resent? Life isn't going to treat us fairly all the time or appreciate us or so forth. We, you know, life has its qualities of fairness and goodness and also its opposite. But I was told anger was a sin, so I just, you know, when I felt angry, I wasn't angry at anyone in the monastery, just resentments I'd remember from time I was a child to time I was a student when I was in the military. And trying to stop this anger, I decided I wasn't going to stop it, I just let, let it go, so I did. And anger is a sankara. You know, it, it isn't permanent. It's not self. It's anatta. So when I resisted, there was a, a lifetime habit at that time, 30 years of, of resisting, repressing negative feelings, fear, you know, of my generation of American men were told we shouldn't be afraid of anything. Our role models for masculinity were cowboys and athletes who always seemed fearless, brave, and facing uh, dangers with great bravery and strength. So that's the way a man's supposed to be according to cultural conditioning 
But this is the way it is, all alone with, with, by myself in the dark, with no electricity, just a candle or a paraffin lamp was a, was a complete luxury. In a foreign country whose language I couldn't understand, in the dark, alone in a forest, as you know, so fears started. I let started. I allowed fear to arise rather than try to stop it, or rationalize it, or justify it. It's like this. Fear is like this. Anger is like this, and you kind of open to it and just be the puto, the witness of it. It is what it is in the moment. And if you don't do anything, relax and let it be what it is, it will cease. And it's because that's the nature of sankharas. They have to cease. There's no permanent ability of a sankhara to sustain itself for very long. So then at the end of three months, I woke up one morning in this kuti, little wooden hut with a tin roof, and the whole place was like beautiful. I was kind of luminous, surrounded by light, and I couldn't even try to think of a negative thought. I couldn't do it. The, the previous memories that, that used to wind me up into anger and resentment wouldn't do anything. They're just empty. Couldn't grab, get hold of me. I couldn't, they couldn't make me believe in them anymore. So I thought I was enlightened. Immediately I thought, this must be what enlightenment is like. And that state lasted for about a week. And, you know, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And then I had to renew my visa to stay in Thailand. I had to go to the immigration point in Nongkai to extend the visa to stay in Thailand. And they were very rude to me at this immigration Stasia. And this radiant luminosity completely disappeared. So then I went back to the monastery. They did extend the visa, by the way. And I went back to the monastery and I tried to get it back. I kept trying to get this state back of luminosity, of bliss. Everything was beautiful. The forest and the monastery was beautiful. The kuti, the tin roof wooden hut I lived in was like a palace. Everything was touched with light and beauty. And that's what I wanted. So it created a desire to have that same experience. But no matter how hard I tried to get it back, it didn't come back. So then I started reviewing this, this word of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, basically the, 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 the uh, first sermon of the Buddha. 
and just started looking, you know, on trying to contemplate suffering, the first noble truth. And I got the, you know, the cause of suffering is wanting to get something you don't have. So I began to have the insight into the fact that I don't have this luminous bliss and I want it. That's bhavadana, that's the desire to get something I remember that I don't have right now. So I started awakening to dhamma, to the way things are. Bhavadana is like this, wanting to get something that you remember or you conceive of, that's like to get enlightened or to become an arahant or to get rid of bad thoughts, kill the kilesas. Wanting to get rid of is vipavadana, the desire to get rid of what you don't like, what you don't want. It's resistance, repression. So in this Four Noble Truths teaching, these three kinds of desire, gamadana, bhavadana, vipavadana, really awakened me to Dhamma, just reflecting on desire. Because in the attitude that I grew up with in American Christian family life, desire was some kind of bad thing. It meant, usually meant sexual desire. We're celibate, we shouldn't have sexual desires. Where desire in Dhamma, it, it can be divided into these three categories, which are very helpful to see how much of your life here at Amaravati is about vipavadana, desiring to get rid of things, or desiring to get something you, you want, mental, uh, to become enlightened, to become an arahant. Now, there's nothing wrong about wanting to become an arahant or to get enlightened. It's not about good and bad anymore, but it is a desire, and desires are impermanent. They're sankharas. All desires, all dana is impermanent and not self. So these three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, nata, you know, they, they give us this wonderful information that all sankharas, what they all share, from the best to the worst, to the biggest to the smallest, is that they're impermanent, unsatisfying, and not personal, non-self. So contemplate that, that whatever you think you are, how you conceive yourself, that's a sankara. So you listen to how, what you think you are, what you believe you are, whether it's in a positive form or negative form, it doesn't matter. It's the puto, the awareness, awakened conscious moment where we're aware that thoughts about me what I think, my feelings, my body, my position, my age, my gender, my rights, 
All these are thoughts that arise and cease rather than concepts to be grasped and proliferated on. Now this is the genius of the Buddha to, to give this teaching, which is, you know, very direct. It's not abstruse or secretive. So in giving this teaching to, to monks, to nuns, to lay people, it's not about special privileged teaching for very specially anointed um, people with high spiritual qualities. It's available for everyone. And it's been available for 2,560-odd years, you know, on the planet. With so much culture, civilization, as we call it, isn't based on that kind of wisdom. Isn't based on wisdom, it's based on ideals, how things should be. Ideals are, you know, what we consider how life should be, how Amravati should be as an ideal. How monastic life should be is, you know, we can all figure out how it should be. It should be completely fair, equal, just, completely right. And if we join the cult of Theravada Buddhism, then we believe that we're better than other forms of Buddhism and other religions because we believe in concepts about the best or the Buddhist teaching, the, the pure teaching, the original teaching. We can be critical of other forms of Buddhism because they, they teach in different ways. But all of it is conceptual proliferation. It's what, using the thinking mind to make judgments, value judgments, about yourself, about the conditions you're living under, about the state of the conditions of the political system, the social system. So all the wars, all the conflict that we hear about in mass media is about conceptual proliferation. Each side thinks they're right. And the other, because they don't agree, are wrong. You know, we, we have a critical mind. We, in America, we were very much brought up with the idea that democracy is the very best. And America stands for, for pure democracy. That's how I was, that was I was called when I was young. Then you find out all the undemocratic things that go on. And it shouldn't be. And they should be, not be hypocritical and live up to this ideal of democracy. But democracy is an ideal. It's a word. 
It's a beautiful word. It's very, you know, very inspiring, can be inspiring. Like socialism. In America, you say you're a socialist, you're, you're considered a communist and a traitor to democracy. Socialism has a very pejorative connotation in the United States, at least it did when I lived there. But in other countries, they call themselves socialist system, democratic socialists, and so forth. You can call your system democratic socialism, socialism, communism. They're all words. But none of them live up to the ideal because they can't. Because life is like this. People are the way they are. We can't, we're not all arahants or perfectly enlightened bodhisattvas. What we feel is like this, which isn't always right or good, but it is the way it is. And this way of reflecting then helps us to accept life as it flows through us. You know, we're developing wisdom, we're using wisdom with with conscious awareness. You become disillusioned with, I remember joining peace movements when I was in Berkeley in the early 1960s because I idolized peace. So, and they had a very active peace movement. Quite a few different organizations of peace movements in Berkeley at the time, Berkeley, California. And uh, the Atomic Energy Commission had an office in Berkeley at that time. So we'd go down protest, carrying signs saying peace, and because we considered the Atomic Energy Commission, you know, unpeaceful, and we're demanding they become peaceful. And while carrying this sign saying peace, I look at myself and I start considering, I don't know what I'm talking about. I really don't know what peace is. I have an idea of peace. But I personally don't, I'm not peaceful as a person. I'm all most of my mental states seem unpeaceful. And then I could see within each peace movement, I joined two peace movements at that time, and there was a lot of jealousies and conflicts within the group. All high-minded, idealistic, peace-minded, peaceniks, people that are demanding peace from governments, from political institutions, from religion, from their mates, from their partners, from husbands, from wives, all wanting peace. But what is peace? And this, of course, is when we understand suffering, we begin to realize peace, our true nature is peaceful, is basically peaceful. What you're not is the unpeaceful conditions that arise and cease. But underlying all those 
fraught conditions, no matter what they may be, is the true nature of consciousness, peacefulness, awareness, mindfulness. This you can trust. This is your refuge. You can't take refuge in your personal positions, your personal preferences, because they'll change and then there'll be conflict because other people have different attachments to different ideas. So trying to find a concept, a sankara, that we all agree on is impossible because we're all different on that level of sankaras. Can you really help the way you are? Can you, you know, can you really be somebody else? Can you just make yourself into an enlightened arahant or a Buddha or a bodhisattva just because that's the ideal you hold? Is it possible for any of us to force ourselves to become perfect? It's impossible, isn't it? Because the sankharas are not perfect. Their very nature is imperfection, change. So ideals are ideal. You know, you can carry thought to the superlative best, the highest possible way you can think, but that's a thought. A thought is a sankhara, it's a nicha dukkanata. It changes, it arises and ceases. You can't sustain perfect ideals. You can attach to them and then be caught in judgments towards yourself, towards others, value judgments, because nobody can live up to the ideal that you may hold to. So we often become disillusioned with political systems, with religion, with meditation. How many of you think you're not a good meditator? Because you can't get samadhi or you don't have jhanas. You're not a good meditator because when you sit in the temple where others look perfectly concentrated and in samadhi your mind is going all over the place and you think that's yourself and you think you're not a good meditator or you can't meditate or you're not a really a Buddhist or you, you create all kinds of proliferating thoughts about it. The direct path then isn't about getting jhanas and perfect samadhi, but in recognizing the conditions that you're experiencing in the present are what they are, they're the way they are, they're changing. And your relationship to them is witnessing their changingness, being patient, letting them be what they are, they arise and cease. According to action and speech, we do our best to conform to the Vinaya to the precepts. But in terms of mental activity, emotional habits, there's no Vinaya around emotional habits or around memories or thoughts or character tendencies. 
because these are, these are all changing conditions in different qualities, different quantities in all of us. So, I reiterate how many times have I talked like this, but, it has to, but there's only one important teaching. You know, you can talk about all kinds of things about personal experiences and views and opinions you have about various other teachers, other religious forms, about, you know, I can raise all the inspiring words about Theravada Buddhism, Thai forest tradition. I can inspire you with inspirational words. But they're only words. And so this emphasis on the impermanent, unsatisfactoriness of words isn't meaning you you, there's something wrong with them, but they're very limited, like sankaras, they're not what you really are. And when you identify, when you grasp the sankaras that you believe you are, you're going to be unhappy. Because, you know, even at their best, they're going to disappoint you. So where does peace lie anyway? Where is peace right now? Is it here in the temple here at Amravati? You can control, you know, like so many monks I've known, nuns also, you know, want peaceful ex external conditions. You know, so no noise, no conflicts, just to live in a state of bliss and peace. We get upset because the Luton uh, airfield, the planes fly overhead, that annoys me, dog barks, somebody's mowing the lawn, and it's disturbing my meta practice or my peacefulness because we we think of peace as controlling everything so that nothing upsets us, nothing distracts us. Well, that's not the way things are. Life, in the, you know, having eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, these are all restless conditions. They're not peaceful. Eyes are not peaceful. The nose, the odors change. Hearing, sounds, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Sensory experience is not peaceful. Its very nature is change, and that's the way it is. And to not want it to be that way is making it suffering. You're creating suffering around the way things are. Where if your true nature is peaceful, then you're peaceful with the changing conditions that you're experiencing. They're like this. The way it is right now at this moment, Whatever you're feeling, whatever you're thinking, is like this. And in this sense of opening, I use open my arms wide, like embracing the moment rather than trying to control it into perfect kind of thinking, 
perfect equanimity that I imagine or that I remember having, I open to. If there's conflict, it's like this. If there's chaos, it's like this. If there's noise, cacophonous sounds, bad odors, ugly things to look at, it's like this. So this you can do anywhere, whether you're here in the monastery in the middle of London in traffic jam, at a meeting with others, So meditation isn't confined to just sitting in the temple at certain designated times of the day. It's integrated into the way we move and change, the sitting, standing, walking, lying down, inhaling, exhaling. The movement and change of, of, of sankharas, of sansara, of the changing conditions that we're all experiencing through our bodies, through our senses. But what is immutable, immovable, unchangeable is this awareness. As we begin to see, that's what we, re we, we, our refuge is not about grasping it, but about letting go of everything. It's like this. So real meditation is ultimate, letting go of absolutely everything, which is not annihilation. Letting go is relaxing, not trying to get samadhi, not trying to get insight, trying to get something you don't have or get rid of what you have that you don't want. But it's like this, it's relaxed holiday of the heart. Lung Po Cha told me about what I asked him one time years ago, what meditation is, bhavana. Could he define meditation in Thai? And he said, in Thai, pakpon tang which means I translate it as holiday of the heart. And I thought to myself, I'm certainly not on a holiday of the heart. <laughs> I don't know what that is. This is trying to become, I keep all these rules of the Vinaya and, and, and trying to meditate and get samadhi and, and trying to get jhanas and, and trying to get enlightened is hard work. It takes a lot of effort. And sometimes I just can't do it. <clears throat> but Lung Po always had this sense of open relaxation of being with the moment whatever was happening, because his life wasn't just praise and flowers and adulation, accolades and so forth. He had to put up with a lot of stress and disappointments and changing conditions that are a part of life. This is the way things are in the best, what we might consider the best monasteries, not to mention any others.
So this afternoon's reflection is just meant to encourage you to trust what you really are, your awareness. Not trying to become like somebody else or some ideal imagined nun or monk or enlightened human being. And they can be inspiring, like enlightened masters are inspiring to us all. But you can't become an enlightened master that you grasp as a concept. The master is the awareness itself that you learn to totally trust and integrate that into your life as it happens. You know, whether it's praise or blame, success, failure, happiness, suffering, success or failure, Because these are all worldly conditions. They're listed in the scriptures as the eight worldly dhammas. Like good fortune, bad fortune. We all want good fortune. We all want success. We all want praise. We all want happiness. But these words, success, good fortune, Happiness, praise are words, positive words that are, you know, that are desirable. And we don't want to be looked down on, despised. We don't want to be failures. We don't want to be losers. We don't want to be blamed for things. We won't, don't want to have bad health. We don't want to get old. We don't want to get sick. We don't want to die. <laughs> we have so many things we don't want. But these not wanting conditions are sankharas. They're worldly dhammas. Because at this moment, this moment can only be like this, the way it is. So I offer this as a reflection. May you all benefit from this and, and don't take it, you know, grasp the teaching, but apply it to your own experience of life as you live from moment to moment.